The Oregonian does report that New Jersey State Police were investigating possible links between Bundy and the unsolved slayings of two co-eds beaten and stabbed on Memorial Day weekend in 1969. Authorities investigating the Memorial Day stabbing deaths of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry say they've been in almost constant communication with Michigan State Police. Those contacts have been intensified with the arrest of 22-year-old John Norman Collins. Thomas R. Walden of Cairo, Georgia, is wanted for questioning in the case, primarily because he happens to have a criminal record and was in the resort area when Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry were brutally knifed to death. Although they officially remain unsolved, serial killer Ted Bundy has long been suspected in the murders of two co-eds at the Jersey Shore. They had a bed and breakfast in Ocean City, New Jersey. The two were later found strangled and stabbed near the Summers Point Ocean City exit on the Garden State Parkway. Brennan and his staff remain firm in the belief that the man who wore this skin diver type wristwatch is the actual perpetrator of the brutal killings. Davis and I are offering a $20,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer or murderers of our daughters. When it comes to the 1969 unsolved Memorial Day murders of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry, one of the first questions I'm invariably asked is, how did you first learn about this case and become so obsessed with it? Like many facets of our adult psyche, the answer to this question is somewhat nuanced and begins with the unraveling of a distant childhood memory. One day I was tucked into the backseat of my parents' car near dusk as we were driving home from the beach along a rural section of the Garden State Parkway, just north of Ocean City, New Jersey. I want to say I was about 12 or 13 years old, maybe a little younger or older, I'm not entirely certain because on these return trips home from summer vacation, I seldom focused on anything but the vast darkened woods on either side of the parkway, entranced by what mysterious creatures lurked within its shadows. After all, I was a suburban kid from southern New Jersey, and up to that point, my taste of outdoor living was limited to a two-week stay each summer at a YMCA camp located along the fringes of the Pine Barrens, not far from the birthplace of the infamous Jersey Devil, a hybrid monster with bat wings, thought to be half wolf and half horse. Or was it a goat with the body of a kangaroo and the fangs of a dog? Folkloric legends like these held captive in my rampant imagination, yearning for exploration. Unbeknownst to me, as I stared fixated out the car window, daydreaming as the sun fell and the shadows grew longer, I was about to learn a small part from a mysterious cold case whose elusive closure would consume me for a significant part of my adult life. We must have been near mile marker 31.9, just north of the Summers Point exit, when I overheard my mother say, they never found out who killed those girls, did they? What girls, I thought. Killed? Murdered? My ears pricked. Gruesome images came to mind of crime scene photos and blood-spattered walls, legends and scary campfire tales. I was right. The creatures that lived in the woods were real. At the time, I must have asked my father for details, but I only remember him mentioning that the police had parked a trailer near the crime scene in hopes that the culprit might return. For as he said, a killer always returns to the scene of the crime. The memory of that car ride lingered dormant stowed away in the recesses of my mind until Memorial Day 1993. On that day, I was in Avalon, New Jersey, another Jersey short town just south of Ocean City, when I read the headline of a Philadelphia Inquirer article written by Larry Lewis. 69 killings near Parkway Unsolved, but Bundy is blamed. I read where serial killer Ted Bundy, responsible for the deaths of over 100 young women, according to some estimates, 
was a suspect in the brutal slayings of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry in the woods alongside mile marker 31.9 of the Garden State Parkway near Ocean City. But the realization that a prolific serial murderer with roots in the Philadelphia suburbs of Roxborough and Lafayette Hill, whose family once had a home in Ocean City, may have slain two young women, coincidentally no more than 100 yards from a spot along the parkway where our family had driven past countless times in my life, retreated to my memory once more, perched for just the right set of circumstances to set it free. A few years later, I was enrolled in a creative writing workshop at Rutgers University when I decided that the story of the 1969 murders might make a great short story. From there, I decided to write a book partly fictionalizing the case, titled The Origins of Infamy, told entirely from Ted Bundy's viewpoint. I had hoped that with the publication of Origins, I could put the case behind me, but a sense of responsibility continued to gnaw. I'd compiled an inordinate amount of research about the case, and I had more to tell. And though I'd been a guest on a few national radio shows, the spotlight on the double murders brought no call to action from the New Jersey State Police or the Atlanta County Prosecutor's Office. Yes, the Prosecutor's Office assured Jackie Ergo of the Philadelphia Inquirer that they planned to revisit the cold case and give it a fresh look. But seeing as the State Police had rejected my previous request to review the official Perry and Davis file, deeming the double homicide an open and active case despite it being over 40 years old at the time, I felt a responsibility to keep the fires burning. It was then that I decided to compile what information I'd gathered over the years and write a true crime book about the Perry Davis murders, titled The Garden State Parkway Murders, A Cold Case Mystery. During these episodes, I will discuss in detail what I uncovered during my nearly 10 years of research for the book, a process of discovery that continues to this day even after the book's publication. In these episodes, you will hear the names of suspects and listen to interviews with law enforcement officials who haven't commented publicly on the case. You, presented with the facts, can decide for yourself the answer to the question, who murdered Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry in the early morning hours of May 30th, 1969, and why hasn't the killer been brought to justice? I'm Christian Barth. Welcome to the Garden State Parkway Murders Podcast. Episode 1. At approximately 4.30 a.m. on the morning of Friday, May 30, 1969, Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry, close friends from Monticello College in Illinois, stood on the porch beneath the faded awning of the two-story colonial-style rooming house, located at 712 9th Street in Ocean City, New Jersey, gathering their belongings beside them. It was Memorial Day, dark yet, and the amusement rides along the boardwalk nearby had gone silent several hours earlier. The roller coasters were quiet, and the Ferris wheel loomed dark and silent over the avenues. As the screen door to the house swung open, the girls were joined on the porch by their landlords, an older German-American couple named Walter and Marie Seiben, who'd woken to see them off. Susan, a tall, sturdy 19-year-old girl with long, dark blonde hair, was from Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, just outside the state capital of Harrisburg. Elizabeth, 
from Excelsior, Minnesota, had long brown hair worn straight and parted down the middle, with a black leather purse slung across her shoulder. Also tall and athletically built, she stood beside her friend as they prepared to leave town, about to embark upon the second leg of their journey, a two-hour drive to Susan's home in Pennsylvania. From there, the girls planned to join Susan and her parents on the drive down to Durham, North Carolina, to see Susan's older brother, Wesley, graduate from Duke University. Walter Sybin, who had several young daughters of his own, was worried that his guests were leaving so early, driving alone on the dark and desolate highways before the sun had risen. He urged them to reconsider their decision and wait until light. There are two of us, Susan reassured him. There are two of us and we'll be all right. Walter watched the girls walk toward the parking lot of Watson's restaurant, where Susan had parked her car, a 1966 Marina Blue Chevrolet Impala convertible. They piled their suitcases in the trunk, heading down 9th Street in the direction of the two bridges and causeway separating Ocean City from the town of Summers Point, located approximately two miles away. Susan and Elizabeth decided to stop for breakfast at the Summers Point Diner. Located on the traffic circle at the foot of the Summers Point Bridge, the diner was busy this morning, but then again the diner was never not busy, especially during the summer season. The only place open 24-7, it drew a constant stream of young patrons through its doors, where packs of drunken, merry revelers hungrily gorged breakfast after listening to the live bands performing nightly at the numerous bars along nearby Bay Avenue, a short walk away. By all accounts, the girls were in good spirits as a hostess seated the pair in a booth alongside the bayside window sometime between 5 and 5.30 a.m. After being seated for a time, at approximately 5.15 a.m., Susan and Elizabeth agreed to share their booth with three college-age boys who'd been standing by the hostess stand, waiting to be seated. There appeared to be a brief disagreement over the payment of the check, according to witnesses. Apparently, the boys had insisted on paying the girl's share, but Susan and Elizabeth had declined. The brief misunderstanding was quietly settled, and at somewhere between 6 and 6.30 a.m., Susan and Elizabeth got up to leave the diner without incident. The boys they were eating with saw them leave through the front entrance, but nobody saw them walk outside into the parking lot and drive away. Two New Jersey State Police troopers, both stationed out of the Avalon Barracks, located beside Exit 13, some 20 miles south of Ocean City, were assigned patrol over the 40-mile southern loop of the Garden State Parkway that Memorial Day morning, including vast stretches of maritime forest encompassing both Atlantic and Cape May counties. James Dunbar, nicknamed Hawk, was a 24-year-old trooper and four-year veteran of the force. He began his shift at approximately 6 a.m. He later testified that he noticed nothing peculiar while out cruising the parkway and noted his log accordingly when his shift ended at 7.30 a.m. that morning. He was followed by Trooper Lewis Sturr, a 17-year state police veteran. Sturr noticed nothing unusual upon first driving over the Patcon Creek Bridge in Egg Harbor Township. However, on his second tour of the same area, at approximately 8.15 a.m., he noticed a light blue Chevy convertible with its top down, parked on the shoulder alongside the northbound lanes of the parkway, near milepost 31.9. Deciding to pull over onto the shoulder to investigate, Stir radioed in the Pennsylvania license plate number to the FBI's National Criminal Information Center, known as the NCIC, and learned that the Chevy hadn't been reported as stolen. He then called in the license plate number, 828-595, to the New Jersey State Police Troop E headquarters, whose dispatchers relayed the teletype to the Pennsylvania Motor Vehicle Department. 
The clerk who received the inquiry, however, mistakenly informed Trooper Sturr that the license plate had been issued to a William J. Quinn of Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. Sturr checked the car and noticed a straw purse in the front seat, its contents seemingly undisturbed. There were no keys in the ignition and no signs of a mechanical breakdown. Presuming the convertible had been abandoned, he ordered it towed to Howard Blazer's garage in nearby Northfield, where it would remain for the next several days. After his shift ended that Friday morning, Sturr left town for a fishing vacation with fellow state trooper Eddie DeHaven. Meanwhile, at Laurel Lane in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, Wesley Davis was getting worried, as nobody had heard from Susan or Elizabeth. The day came and went with no word. He called the boarding house where the girls had stayed, but the landlord, Walter Sybin, said he hadn't heard from the girls since last seeing them drive away that morning. Davis called the Perrys in Minnesota, and the parents began calling their daughter's friends. By 2 a.m., we got panicky, Davis told a reporter. The following morning, Mr. Davis telephoned the Ocean City Police Department, who began an informal attempt to locate the girls. Elizabeth's father, Raymond Perry, flew east and joined Mr. Davis in the search for their daughters. The fathers rented a helicopter to fly over the wooded marshes outside Ocean City and Summers Point, fearful that the girls had gotten into a car accident and had driven off the road. They solicited the intervention of Congressman John E. Hunt of Pennsylvania and Clark McGregor of Minnesota, as well as the FBI, who offered to monitor the investigation. They couldn't get officially involved yet, as there was no evidence of a kidnapping across state lines that would render it a federal crime and invoke their jurisdiction. Mr. Davis sought the help of his Camp Hill neighbor, William C. Sennett, then the youngest attorney general ever in Pennsylvania. Today, Mr. Sennett, the former president and retired partner of the law firm of Knox, McLaughlin, Gornall, and Sennett, still lives in Erie, Pennsylvania, where he returned to his law practice after his stint as attorney general ended. I first interviewed Mr. Sennett for my book, The Garden State Parkway Murders, A Cold Case Mystery, back in 2010 and he was more than eager to revisit the topic of the unsolved murders of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry for this podcast. Mr. Sennett can still vividly recall the day back in 1969 when Wesley Davis called him at his home on Sunday, June 1st, desperate for help. I think it was Sunday morning, and uh, he called and I listened for about, oh, I don't know, five minutes or so, and he apparently... What he said was he couldn't get uh, cooperation because he was in New Jersey and they had a problem with the fact that uh, he needed cooperation from the Pennsylvania State Police and he was having difficulty. And he told me about the two girls that are missing and all that sort of stuff. And I said, okay, uh, I got the picture. I'll, uh, I knew Frank McKenna, who was the state police commissioner. We were, uh, we were a lot, uh, you know, conf we were in the same cabinet together. I knew him fairly well. We worked with, I'd worked with the state police in my then capacity, and uh, and uh, we had a good relationship. So I just I called him up at home. It wasn't unusual. I'd call him a number of times at home if I needed him on various things. Um, and I said, Frank, we got a problem over there in New Jersey. This guy just called me. They got two two young girls missing, and he, he needs some cooperation from the Pennsylvania State Police. Okay, Bill, fine. I'll I'll take care of it right away. So uh, I don't know what he did, but I do know that he did get they did get cooperation from the Pennsylvania State Police in the search. Well, he was he was, as you can imagine, a father. I had uh, 
we had six children. And uh, you can imagine the panic in the father of the young girl and her friend being missing uh, for a period of time. You, you just, I mean, he was pure panic, yeah. And, and desperation uh, because he had, wasn't able to get what he thought he should be able to get. Upon returning from his fishing vacation and reporting for duty at the Avalon State Police Barracks on Monday morning, June 2nd, Trooper Lewis Sturr immediately realized a terrible mistake had been made, stunned as he recognized that the light blue Chevy convertible he ordered towed from the parkway three days earlier was the same vehicle described in the missing persons bulletin at the barracks. He promptly informed his supervisor, New Jersey State Police Sergeant Lewis Cavalier, who notified the Ocean City Police Department that they had Susan Davis's car in their possession. Although jurisdiction was still uncertain at this point, after all, this was still officially a missing persons investigation, at 11.15 that morning, the New Jersey State Police ordered a massive search of the woods and marshes in the vicinity of Parkway Milepost 31.9. State highway maintenance workers and state trooper trainees bust in from the Seeger, New Jersey State Police Training Facility went on their hands and knees, forming a human chain along the grassy slope between the parkway shoulder and the entrance to the woods. Approximately 15 minutes into the search, a sharp whistle echoed from the trees. Elwood Fonts, a 20-year-old parkway maintenance worker from Summers Point, stood aghast at the horror of what he saw before him on the forest floor. So traumatic were the circumstances of his discovery, he would eventually lose his voice for two weeks. Over the years, I tried several times to speak with Mr. Fonts, as he still lives in the Summers Point area the last time I checked. After the publication of the Garden State Parkway murders, Fonts' son, a local firefighter, reached out to me and said he would have his father contact me, but I never heard from him. I had heard through the grapevine that what Woody Fonts saw that sunny, warm June afternoon 50 years ago continues to profoundly affect him a tragedy too painful to relive. Susan and Elizabeth were found approximately 219 feet from where their car had been parked. Susan was completely nude and face down. She'd been stabbed in the stomach and throat and severely beaten about the face and torso. The blue dress she'd worn that morning was found piled neatly beside her and her shoes were still on her feet. Elizabeth was discovered lying face up, 10 feet away from Susan. She still had on the green dress she'd worn the morning she left the rooming house but according to two newspaper reports, her underwear were missing. She, too, had been repeatedly stabbed throughout the throat and abdomen and brutally beaten. Her black leather purse was located near her. Its contents, including a few dollar bills, were strewn about nearby, but nothing had been stolen. Both victims were covered in leaves and sticks, located several feet away from a firebreak path. As word of the discovery leaked, a reporter called Wesley Davis at his Camp Hill, Pennsylvania home, to inform him that the bodies of two young women fitting the description of his daughter and her friend had been found alongside the parkway. A gathering of newsmen lit upon Laura Lane as news spread about the grim discovery, maintaining a respectful distance from the Davis home. As if understanding long before now that this moment was a foregone conclusion, Wesley Davis maintained his composure as he stepped outside his home and down the driveway. His wife Marjorie, however, had to be sedated and remained inside. Mr. Perry, who was staying over as the Davis's guest, seemed far more unsteady as he walked in a daze toward a station wagon waiting to escort both fathers to the local Harrisburg airport where they would board a flight to Atlantic City.
That same afternoon, New Jersey State Police officials flew in by helicopter to the murder scene. Patrol cars engulfed the area between mileposts 31.8 and 31.9, so that from a distance they appeared to have careened into one another down an icy embankment. A bevy of news trucks sped in soon thereafter. With their arms akimbo, uniformed state troopers Kenneth Crawford, Tom McCrate, and Tom Innocente alternately stood guard on either side of the weeded paths leading into the woods in the crime scene, securing the entrance from eager newspaper photographers. Troopers sifted the area with metal detectors. Approximately four hours later, five troopers emerged from the path, carrying a pair of stretchers bound with bulging white sheets. Two troopers hoisted two body bags into a waiting hearse parked on the grassy embankment in front of the entrance. Detective Bob Saunders told a newspaper reporter, The Dreisbeck, Engelmeyer, Adamucci murders, I've worked on all of them. So many of them I guess I want to forget, but you can't. None of us will ever be able to forget this one. I've seen worse in the way of injuries and violence, but to see two nice young kids who just a few days ago were alive and happy with nothing facing them but a full future, to look at them in those woods, no matter how hardened you become, you'll never forget that sight. This was a bad one. That Monday afternoon, the three boys whom Susan and Elizabeth had eaten breakfast with at the Point Diner came forward to the state police gave statements, and were cleared of any wrongdoing. One of the young men was William McMonagall, who went on to be appointed head of the Philadelphia Family Court Bench Warrant Unit, where he was legendary for traveling far and wide in order to collar deadbeat dads delinquent in their child support payments. One of the most difficult aspects of writing a book about a cold case, as old as the Perry Davis murders, is trying to unravel the identities of possible witnesses whom newspaper reports left unnamed back in 1969. Sometimes you get lucky, and this is one of those instances. One day I got a call out of the blue from a young detective within the Philadelphia Police Department. The detective recalled a summer job he'd had one year, working alongside McMonagall, and said that McMonagall had told him that he was questioned by the New Jersey State Police about the Garden State Parkway murders. Strangely, this detective, though he had no proof to substantiate his claims, said he had a hunch that McMonagall had committed the murders. After checking public search engines, sifting through seemingly endless variants of this popular Irish-American surname, and leaving numerous voicemails, I finally received a block call one day from Mr. McMonagall. Like many retired detectives, McMonagall, an ex-Marine and graduate of Cardinal Doherty High School in Philadelphia, was secretive, fearful of having his name associated with a grisly double murder, even though his story checked out with the New Jersey State Police. McMonagall, who died in 2014, told me that on the morning of the murders, he and two friends from local Philadelphia colleges were returning from Ocean City after a night of partying when they decided to turn in to the Summers Point Diner. While he was in the bathroom, his friends had joined Susan and Elizabeth's booth by the window. They ordered breakfast without incident and ate together, and his friends teasingly asked to see Susan and Elizabeth's identification as they appeared so young as to be in high school. A few days later, while playing a game of pickup basketball at LaSalle University, McMonagall heard of the murders from the news and voluntarily submitted to several lie detector tests given by the New Jersey State Police. He passed the polygraph, as did his buddies. Although he offered to maintain the anonymity of his two friends, McMonagall refused to disclose their identity or offer suggestions how I might reach them, 
who would only say that one of the young men was the son of a prominent Philadelphia surgeon, the other lived in Maryland, and both were still alive. He did say he would contact them to see if they were willing to talk to me, but I never heard from either of them. McMonagle and I wound up our conversation by him telling me that around the time that Ted Bundy's name had surfaced in connection with the Garden State Parkway murders, he was contacted again by the New Jersey State Police, who told him that one of the girl's fathers wished to speak with him, as he and his friends were the last people to have spoken with Susan and Elizabeth, but neither father ever made any effort to contact him. At around the same time that William McMonagle and his two friends were being questioned by the New Jersey State Police, Troopers met Wesley Davis and Raymond Perry at Baderfield Airport in Atlantic City. They were taken to the garage in the rear of the New Jersey State Police Barracks on the White Horse Pike and Absecon, where Susan's convertible, a crucial piece of evidence, had been towed from Blazer's Garage, located on Tilton Road in nearby Northfield. For three days, the convertible had remained parked on a dusty lot behind the mechanic shop, handled repeatedly during the course of its journey between the parkway and Tilton Road. Now it was parked on the apron in front of the state police garage and circled by members of the press. Mr. Davis confirmed that the 1966 Impala Supersport convertible did in fact belong to his daughter. From here, the fathers were taken to Shore Memorial Hospital on Shore Road in Summers Point, about a half a mile from the traffic circle, in order to positively identify their daughter's bodies. An hour later, they exited the side door of the hospital morgue. The toll of crushing despair was carved deeply into Mr. Davis's expression. With the sleeves of his white button-down rolled to his elbows, a pen clip within his shirt pocket, the tall, bespectacled 47-year-old politely muttered to reporters, Thank you, gentlemen, before leaving the hospital at approximately 5 p.m. Monday afternoon. On two separate occasions in 2010, I had the chance to interview Robert McAllister, Jr., the former Atlantic County prosecutor who was present in the morgue that day in 1969. Though exceedingly polite, the first time we spoke, Mr. McAllister was somewhat cagey in his responses about his involvement in the Perry and Davis homicide investigation, perhaps trying to discern my intent, even though I told him I was writing a book on the subject and that he had been interviewed by Jackie Ergo of the Philadelphia Inquirer about my book, The Origins of Infamy. During our first conversation, what McAllister said was this. The New Jersey State Police had what he characterized as two good suspects for the murders of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry. One of the suspects, as he recalled, had also been a suspect in the 1969 murder of Dominic Perry, the owner of Caesar's Restaurant, who was shot to death during the course of a holdup in his Atlantic County restaurant located at Route 40 in Hamilton Township in December 1969. By way of disclosure, there is no relation between the Perry family, Elizabeth Perry, Raymond Perry, or Dominic Perry's family in Hamilton. No matter how hard I pressed, however, McAllister wouldn't name either suspect in the murders. After our conversation, I immediately Googled the Caesars restaurant case, but the coverage was minimal. I heard where the man eventually convicted of Dominic Perry's murder was a Jersey Shore arsonist named Frank Fertig, who died in 1991. One day, a few years ago, I left a message for an Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey mechanic who alleged, while under hypnosis, that he gave Furtick a ride to the restaurant on the night of the murder. As the Caesars restaurant murder and the Parkway murders occurred within seven months of one another and in the same general vicinity, I was anxious to learn from the mechanic whether he had any knowledge of Furtick and to see if Furtick was the suspect alluded to by McAllister. 
A few days after leaving a message at the garage where the mechanic worked, I received a suspicious blocked call from an unidentified man who covertly said, I understand you want to know about Frank Furtick. I confirmed that this was true and asked the caller to identify himself, but he refused. Frank Furtick is a bad person, an extremely dangerous man, was all he would say, over and over, without disclosing anything more. I vaguely remember reminding this mystery caller that Furtick was dead and that neither the caller nor I had any reason to be afraid that Furtick might track us down if he learned I was investigating any possible connection to the Parkway murders. The caller's voice was clearly that of a younger man, so I knew it wasn't the mechanic pretending to be someone else. But why didn't the mechanic call me himself, especially when I offered to protect his identity? I asked this person to have the mechanic give me a call, assuring him that we could speak off the record. But after we ended our conversation, this was the last I heard of him, and I never called the garage again. This was just one of the several mysterious interludes I experienced during the course of my investigation into the Parkway murders that in the interests of brevity, I didn't include in my book. Though Robert McAllister was strangely secretive during our initial conversation, he opened up much more during our follow-up talk. When these terrible crimes occurred, he said, the New Jersey State Police, through the Attorney General's office, were directed to do the investigation, but only using our office as a follow-up, he said. We were part-time prosecutor's office at that time. The two top investigators for the state police reported to First Assistant Prosecutor Solomon Foreman mainly to keep him informed. In the days following the Parkway murders, McAllister was tasked with giving nightly press briefings on the Perry and Davis homicide investigation and assisting the state police in whatever way he could, even sometimes dispatching the chief of county detectives to get them coffee. The investigation was so big, he said, the AG didn't think that our office, a small office with 10 part-time attorneys, could handle an investigation of that size. When I uncovered a press glossy of McAllister standing in the median between the north and southbound lanes of the parkway, patiently addressing reporters in his horn-rimmed glasses, crooked hair, and tweed sports coat, his image brought to mind an economics professor lecturing an auditorium full of drowsy students on the vicissitudes of market equilibrium. Patiently, though reluctantly, McAllister relived from me brief, distant glimpses of the case, telling of the harrowing ordeal he bore witness to that June afternoon in 1969 as the sheets were drawn back on Susan and Elizabeth. My clearest memory of that case that comes to mind, when I'm really down and tired and upset about something, McAllister said, is walking in and looking at those dead bodies with the parents. It was possibly the saddest moment of my life. I'll never forget it ever. On a very interesting side note, McAllister did tell me that at some point he visited the New Jersey State Police and asked them to help me find Susan Elizabeth's killer. But I never heard back from them in response to Mr. McAllister's inquiries. You know, I went up there and I asked them to cooperate with you, he said. But by that time, I was out of the office and I had no zip at all. They didn't have much to say about anything. I didn't get much information from them other than what they gave you. McAllister was in poor health when we last spoke. He was 80, he said, and when I asked if I could call him again, he kidded, well, you better hurry up. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be around. He seemed to know that he was going to die before we spoke again. Good luck. I hope you find him. He died three months later.
The autopsies of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry were performed at Shore Memorial Hospital two hours after Wesley Davis and Ray Perry positively identified their daughters. Dr. Edward Albano, Chief Medical Examiner for the State of New Jersey, Dr. William A. Joy, Atlantic County Medical Examiner, and Dr. Henry Seidel, a hospital pathologist, concluded that Susan's death was caused by a stab wound to the right side of the neck, perforating her larynx. The report also revealed three stab wounds to the left side of her abdomen. She'd been severely beaten about her face and upper torso region. Elizabeth had been severely beaten as well. Her rage-fueled assailant plunged his knife into her chest five times. She died from a gaping wound that pierced her right lung. At 6.40 p.m. that evening, legendary anchor Walter Cronkite reported the tragic discovery of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry on the CBS Evening News while reporters continued scouring the Parkway woods and nearby marshes for evidence. Among the items they uncovered were Susan's eyeglasses and a skin diver wristwatch. The police had initially hoped to treat the watch as a holdback, a term used by detectives when they withhold a crucial piece of evidence from the press, so that during interrogation and lie detector tests, crafty suspects can't attribute their knowledge of it to what they read in the paper or saw on television. This practice is also useful in discouraging publicity-seeking individuals who habitually offer false confessions to satisfy a compelling need for notoriety. Unfortunately, news of the watch's discovery was leaked to the Philadelphia Inquirer and reported in Tuesday morning's edition. However, the make and model of the watch, a Belfort Sea Diver retailing for $39.95 at local surf shops, wouldn't be disclosed to the press for several weeks. Because of its proximity to the murder locus, and because it fell under the prosecutorial jurisdiction of the Atlantic County Prosecutor's Office, the Abseekin Barracks, located at 244 East Whitehorse Pike, a few miles from Atlantic City, was designated as temporary headquarters for the Davis-Perry homicide investigation. When I visited the former barracks several years ago, it was abandoned and for sale, resembling, as with many commercial and residential properties, that lapsed into foreclosure during the Atlantic County foreclosure crisis during the mid-2000s, a lost Amazonian village overtaken by verdant jungle growth. Though it had been converted into an office building, the back driveway and garage, where Susan's convertible was stored by police, and where Wesley Davis had the grim task of identifying his daughter's car, remained as it had in 1969. If you do a Google satellite map search today, however, you'll see that the property has since been sold once more and somewhat restored to how it appeared in 1969. Police Colonel and Superintendent David B. Kelly appointed James F. Brennan to preside over a task force of 30 homicide detectives assigned to work the double murders out of the barracks. A 22-year state police veteran, Brennan was overseen by Captain Mario Patera and Major Victor Golassi of the division headquarters in Trenton. Balding and stocky, with a crooked nose busted in a childhood mishap, Jim Brennan was a devout Irish-American cop who'd served in the Navy during World War II and lived in nearby Stone Harbor, where he ushered at St. Paul's Roman Catholic Church. The top-ranking detective out of the Hamilton State Police Barracks, Brennan was experienced in leading high-profile investigations. Late Monday evening, June 2nd, Brennan stood before a crowd of anxious newsmen wearing pork pie hats and shirt sleeves, bunched within a sweaty front press room at the Absecon Barracks, eager to learn of any early leads in the case. The state police had no suspects or leads. 
Brennan bluntly announced as they continued to barrage him with question after question. The boarders who'd stayed at Walter Seidman's boarding house hadn't been interviewed yet, but none were under suspicion. Detectives were awaiting lab results to determine whether Susan or Elizabeth had been raped, Brennan tersely replied, before glumly retreating to his office and closing the door. Brennan's tone was indicative of the mood at the barracks, for the state police had little to go on at this point. The culprit had long since made his escape, and a watch was all that he'd left behind. Robbery had been ruled out as a motive, as Susan's purse was untouched, and the murderer left behind the few dollar bills that were in Elizabeth's purse. Worse, the bodies had been left outside in the humid air for three days, exposed to insects and scavenging animals, accelerating decomposition and making it more difficult for pathologists to harvest useful forensic evidence. Top state police officials assembled at Trenton headquarters to strategize. Port Norris and Bass River Barracks lent troopers to assist Absecon detectives in the investigation, working throughout Monday night in search of witnesses. And though his department lacked jurisdiction, John Dival, a lieutenant with the Ocean City Police Department Detective Bureau, visited the crime scene off mile marker 31.9 several times in the initial days of the investigation. I was able to speak with Lieutenant Dival, long since retired, from his home in Ocean City 10 years ago, while a nurse inserted an IV drip into his arm as part of a weekly treatment for a blood disease he was valiantly battling. So I remember every single solitary aspect of that case. First of all, you know, there, there's, there's many aspects of this, what part was I involved in, that I can still cover because I made myself involved. For instance, uh, when they left town, I went to the place where the car was left. I went into the, to the uh, area where the bodies were found. I know, for instance, that it was one of the warmest summers we'd had in a long while. And I know that the way the bodies were left, they had to be left because the person had an excellent knowledge of chemistry knowing that the three things you need is heat, moisture, darkness, and a proper point of acidity to eliminate evidence, put as much time between you and detection as the principal whole thing. And all that was accomplished. It was remarkable. So I went out of my way to search those things. I went out of my way to to search things like why uh, why did they uh, take the uh, guard, the, the toll taker, and, uh, you know, throw him on true serum or whatever the hell they did. And uh, why did he say the things he did? What about the trooper that passed the car three times in the course of his patrol and never looked to see that a pocketbook was there? A woman never leaves without her pocketbook. A pocketbook is a security blanket to a woman. From what I hear, I didn't see this, but from what I hear from, you know, in the conversation of all the detectives talking, everybody that's involved, including the troopers, uh, the clothes were neatly folded which means that do we have a military person or do we have a person that's a, a fanatic for the way things must be, everything in this place, you know, that kind of deal. I just I just ran through it. I loved it. Ran through that thing. I, I investigated any aspect I could that I didn't even have any business doing. Okay, well, I know they did moulage. Moulage is where you see a print in the ground. And in order to determine what kind of shoes you were wearing the night you did the job, 
they pour a plaster of Paris in it, make a cast of the shoe, and it comes up a Nike sole. And you know, all those things are patented, and you can, you can, uh, it's like laundry marks. Well, one of them was very deep, which right. to me, I mean, nobody ever said to me, no, I just observed. No, none of these detectives from the state police or anywhere else were running around saying, look at this, look at this. I just observed not being stupid and having known enough about the forensic side of it that if your foot, if you weigh 150 pounds and the ground's a certain uh, modular of elasticity, if you will, from, from uh, uh, rain and whatnot, you're going to make an imprint. But that imprint, if it's extremely deep, it would indicate that you weren't 150 pounds, you were 245 pounds. So you had to be lugging something. As far as I'm concerned, she had to be carried to the car, uh, to the scene, from the car, for two reasons. One, she didn't walk there. And number two, a woman does not leave her purse in the car. Do I think they were killed elsewhere? No, I don't. No, I, I really don't. I think that I, I, I sincerely believe that he did come. He, he was picked up by them after they left the diner, is what I feel, uh, the point diner. I feel that he then went through the toll booth, which is right next to where my mother lived. Uh, they went through the toll booth, and they came to that deer crossing sign. And I feel that whatever transpired, transpired at that point, and in the hustle, bustle, and confusion, one of them somehow was rendered uh, unable to fight anymore for whatever reason and whatever manner, I do not know. And I think that person couldn't be left sitting in the car. It's too obvious. So off into the woods they went and the other one went. And so then comes the police come by and they see a car. What he did, I don't know. I don't know whether he called it in and asked for a lookup on it or an NCIC or what he did. But uh, somehow, the pocketbook was left right after I found that extremely odd. I don't, I wouldn't say they were killed in the car, I don't know, but they were rendered, in my personal opinion, from sizing the scene up, I would say that something happened in the car that prevented that particular individual from walking into the woods at the scene. Ergo, they had to be carried. They sure weren't dragged, I didn't see... Although I was grateful that Lieutenant Dival, Mr. McMonagle, and Mr. Sennett had so generously offered their time in speaking with me about the 1969 Parkway murders, a stark realization had begun to set in as I began producing this podcast. Many of the people whom I'd interviewed years ago while researching the case and writing my book, and several of the witnesses and detectives who'd provided vital information that I in turn shared with my readers, had since passed away. So I returned to my boxes and case files, feverishly searching for old tapes, rereading my interview notes, tracking down old phone numbers, hoping to revisit old conversations and renew acquaintances before it was too late. Mercifully, with the advent of social media, since the publication of the Garden State Parkway murders in January 2020, my website, email inbox, and Facebook IM have been deluged with messages from people who were in Ocean City in 1969 had read my book, vividly recall the case, and have come forward with vital information they are anxious to share with our listeners. Please join me for Episode 2 as we hear their stories, 
and together dig deeper towards solving the 1969 Garden State Parkway murders. If you're enjoying this topic and want to learn even more about the unsolved murders of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry, you should check out my book, The Garden State Parkway Murders, A Cold Case Mystery, published by Wild Blue Press and available on Amazon in print, audio, and ebook formats. The book is also available for sale at Sunrose Words and Music on Asbury Avenue in Ocean City, New Jersey. You will find links to these sites, as well as a catalog of other true crime podcasts where I've discussed the Parkway murders, at www.christianbarthauthor.com.